Fear is a powerful motivator. When the fight-or-flight reflex is triggered, history has shown us that people, ordinary people, can do extraordinary things. Of course, if it's not channeled correctly, fear can also lead to disaster. I feel that the history of the Apache Wars could teach us a thing or two about that last point. Through all of the breakouts, skirmishes, misunderstandings, miscommunications, and betrayals, it's always been fear of the other side that has led to the worst parts of this conflict. It was fear of an old man and his religious fervor that kicked off the latest round of violence in 1881, after all. And it was fear of further punishment stemming from the consequences of fear of an old man and his religious fervor that had pushed the Chiricahua Apache in general, and Geronimo in particular, into yet another breakout and running battle with the U.S. Army. And it was fear of this breakout that led to even further conflicts between San Carlos and the Mexican border. And now, it was fear of both the Americans and the Mexicans that was driving the Chiricahua as they fled further and further into the mountains. Don't expect this fear to subside anytime soon, as there was so much more to come for our Apache friends. But eventually, they will decide that it's high time they dished out some fear all of their own. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 94, It's a Trap. Welcome back, everyone. To kick things off this week, I'm afraid I'm going to have to go in for yet another small correction. Apparently, you just shouldn't trust me when it comes to cardinal directions because I can't tell my left from my right. Back in episode 92, when discussing the Dreamer and the Sibiku branch of the Western Apache, I mentioned that they lived along three creeks on the east side of the White Mountains. Well, longtime listener and friend of the show Ben M. reached out to gently let me know that all three of those creeks are on the west side of the mountains. And yes, of course they are. I feel extra sheepish because one of those creeks is Canyon Creek, which I went camping along many times as a kid. And for the record, Ben's word when it comes to these things is unassailable because he is, as I've told him many, many times in person, a rather freakish geography geek. So for those keeping track at home, that's twice now I've messed up west and east in a span of like four episodes. I'm going to be paranoid about it from here on out. But not as paranoid as the Chiricahua Apache were feeling right about now. How did you like that transition? as they were fleeing further south into Mexico. As a quick reminder from last week, Geronimo and a band of some 60-plus Apache had made it up to San Carlos, where they, quote-unquote, rescued the Apache leader Loco and his people and helped guide them out of Arizona to join the rest of the Chiricahua. Along the way, there was a lot of raiding and killing, plus a few skirmishes with the U.S. Army. But once down past the magical border that the White Eyes put so much stock in, they had let their guard down, literally, and then had been ambushed by an American force that decided their hatred of the Apache trumped their fear of dealing with the Mexican government. And though some bravery and a whole lot of luck had kept the Apache from being completely wiped out, 
they were still in a full retreat, trying to get to Hua and the remaining brethren who were holed up in the mountains to the south. The Chiricahua managed to gather at sundown on April 27th, so I would guess anywhere between 12 to 15 hours after the American attack, to do another night march that hopefully would see them reach Hua's camp in a couple days. Some warriors returned with horses that had nearly been lost in the attack, but for the most part, the women and children walked while mounted warriors rode around them waiting for some sign of pursuit. And Geronimo posted most of these fighting men to the rear, certain that the American troops would show up any minute now. The group had to pass through what the sources describe as level, flat, and grassy country, which was occasionally crisscrossed by washes. So not the most welcome environment if you had just been jumped and are thinking it will happen again. What this had the effect of doing was stretching out the Apache line in a column a half a mile long, another cause for great concern. But the Americans were not following them, at least not at this moment. What Geronimo and his warriors had to really worry about was the Mexican army, as they were about to find out. Two smaller advance parties, with Naiche and other leaders, had gone on roughly a mile ahead of the main Chiricahua party, and by 5 a.m. on April 29th, two days after the American ambush, the women and children who were part of the main party began to smell coffee. They supposed this to mean that the advance camp was getting close and started to accelerate a little, but that's when the trap was sprung. Unbeknownst to the Apache, a force of 200 men under the command of Colonel Lorenzo Garcia was lying in wait for them at a place called Alisos Creek, and it was their camp and their coffee that everyone was smelling. Possibly tiffed off about the Apache route from two Chiricahua men that had been captured during a side mission days earlier, Garcia and his force had let the advance party pass them by while they waited for the main Apache body to reach them. And as soon as it did, the Mexicans opened fire. The first volley struck with horrible effect, killing women and children. Edwin Arsweeney says it took out entire families in one fell swoop. And some of those shots had come from with only a hundred yards away. Then the Mexicans leapt from their hiding places, charging with fixed bayonets. Women, children, and the few men at the front tried to escape toward some foothills roughly a mile away, but it only resulted in Mexican troops picking them off as they ran between boulders and into creek beds. Of course, none of this went unnoticed by those at the rear, and Geronimo and 32 warriors came charging up, which actually managed to drive the Mexicans back. Instantly, Geronimo ordered the digging of rifle pits into the side of an arroyo so his people could entrench and protect the vulnerable women and children. By the time Garcia pulled off another charge, these were nearly done, and Apache snipers managed to take out several of the Mexican officers' men. Here we also get an inspirational story from the Apache point of view. During the entrenchment at the arroyo, Loco had dropped a sack of 500 rifle cartridges roughly 50 feet away from where they had dug in. 
An old woman, sometimes misidentified as Losin, the visionary sister of Victorio, volunteered to run out from the protective wall of the Arroyo and retrieve the precious ammunition. Now, roughly five hours into this battle, Garcia ordered a bold bayonet charge to dislodge the Apache from their position. Geronimo would claim that he heard the Mexicans calling his name, threatening that today would be his last day on earth. The Mexicans advanced under the command of Captain Antonio Rada amid heavy Apache fire. And if we can believe Geronimo's account, this charge only got part way before he managed to personally pick off Rada. By this point, it was 11 a.m., and neither side was aware of just how desperate and low on ammunition the other side was. Most major combat ceased, though the Mexicans would try a half-hearted charge in the afternoon after 60 more cavalrymen showed up. The Apache were hoping to hold out until dusk, when they could use the cover of night to slip away again. Now, at this point, with the sun starting to set, the grass between the two sides was set on fire. Geronimo claims that he had the Apache do this, to create a literal smokescreen for his people to escape, though the other sources say that Garcia actually ordered this fire lit in order to smoke the Apaches out. But the fire did give the Apache the cover they needed for most to slip away, with only a few warriors firing sporadically to disguise the retreat. So if Garcia had ordered this, it had kind of backfired. At this point, I want to address some of the rumors swirling around Geronimo's actions during this particular part of the fight. Accounts of this battle sometimes paint Geronimo in the worst possible light, accusing him of wanting the men to leave the women and children behind. These accounts also accuse him of suggesting that mothers smother their own children so they would not cry and give away their position. Sweeney mentions that he just does not find any veracity to these stories, as they were either conflated with other scenarios or they were repeated by Apache who simply disliked Geronimo which, as I mentioned last week, was not that uncommon of an occurrence. One account from the battle does mention a mother choking her baby to death, but only because she did not want the child to be a slave to the Mexicans should the worst happen. You'll also find charges of cowardice leveled against Geronimo, with some arguing that he hid in a hole among the women and children during the heaviest of the fighting. Other accounts, though, say that, yes, he was in a hole, but only because he was helping dig it out. Once again, we have to keep in mind that many of these accusations come from Geronimo's detractors, so their veracity should be taken with a grain of salt. During this same battle, we get accounts of Geronimo rushing into where the fighting was thickest, and we have to remember that he did believe his power would protect him in battle. What is more odd than Geronimo and his actions, however, are Naiche and his actions. Remember that Naiche, the son of Cochise, had been part of that advance guard that had ridden past the Mexican position earlier in the morning. He and the 15 men with him had crossed Aliso's Creek and moved into the foothills beyond without any issue. And that's where they were during the whole of this battle, sitting in their camp casually smoking, while their people were being fired upon less than a mile away. There was no good explanation for their behavior aside from some petty excuses given later on. In fact, it 
all seems downright bizarre and selfish when you look at every other Apache action. The battle at Aliso's Creek was an unmitigated disaster for the Chiricahua. Garcia and his men managed to kill 78 Apache, with only roughly a dozen of those being men. He had captured 33 women and children, including Geronimo's second wife and, maybe more tragically, Loco's daughter. Overall, Loco, after being forced to leave San Carlos, had lost roughly 40% of his band already. The Mexicans had taken their own losses, but in contrast to the Chiricahua, the 23 officers and enlisted men who died and the somewhere between 16 and 40 wounded seemed like nothing. Still, the Mexican government would grant the families of the soldiers who died or were disabled at Aliso's Creek pensions to thank them for this victory. In coming months and years, many of the survivors of the various Chiricahua bands would point an accusing finger at Geronimo, blaming him for the massive loss of life and refusing to forgive him for forcing them all off the reservation and down into Mexico. Which, you know, is not an invalid point of view. But from their new vantage point up in the mountains, the Apache next saw something that filled them with both dread and hope. Because down in the valley below, they watched in amazement as U.S. Army soldiers, numbering five times as many Mexicans as they had just fought, managed to run right into Garcia and his forces. Just the fact that the Americans were there, and in such large numbers, was terrifying. But watching the U.S. and Mexican armies tear into each other was something the Apache genuinely believed was on the table. I mean, who wouldn't want to watch their two biggest enemies drastically undercut each other? Unfortunately, the Apache had no such luck. The American soldiers were led by none other than Lieutenant Colonel George A. Forsyth, who had battled the Apache at Horseshoe Canyon after their escape from San Carlos. After realizing that the Apache were actually heading south and not north, Forsyth had stumbled into the detachments under Captains Tupper and Rafferty, who were returning to the U.S. after their failed bid to really surprise the Apache across the border. Tupper was surprised, saying that he didn't think there were other troops within 100 miles of his. And he must have been even more surprised when Forsyth ordered him to join him in once again heading into Mexico. Forsyth had Tupper and Rafferty lead to the battlefield where they had engaged the Apache, and then the troops, nine companies of cavalry and three companies of scouts, followed the Apache trail further south. Early the next morning, we are on May 1st here, if I'm keeping track of things right, the soldiers were awakened to the sound of a bugle, but not one playing the revelry that they were familiar with. That's right, it was the Mexican army still nearby, and Forsyth must have realized he had a potential diplomatic nightmare on his hands. As you can imagine, the subject of Americans crossing the border was a sore spot for the Mexicans, and there had been issues in the very recent past. In early November 1881, a lieutenant with the 1st Cavalry had crossed into Sonora near Agua Prieta with 30 men and 8 scouts while on the trail of some aggressive Apache. In all likelihood, he simply didn't know that he was in Mexico. I mean, after all, it wasn't like there were many clear markers at this time. But he had the misfortune of being spotted by federal, as opposed to local Mexican forces, 
and suddenly General Orlando Wilcox up in Arizona had a formal complaint on his desk. Then in mid-January 1882, so just three months before what we're talking about, Lieutenant David N. McDonald crossed the border when he and his scouts picked up an Apache trail. After following this for a while, McDonald realized that they were running low on supplies, so he made a detour to the town of Ascension in Chihuahua. Big mistake. He was instantly seen as a foreign interloper, and his contingent of Apache scouts were especially unwelcome. Eventually, Mexican army troops surrounded McDonald and his company, arrested him, and held him at the Mexican city of Casas Grandes for several days before eventually releasing him. So Forsyth may have had a reason to feel anxious, as he was the third American expedition to be caught violating Mexican territory in six months. So, making sure to put on his most sincere face, Forsyth went out to meet Garcia. And I'll just note here, because you know how much I love Minutia, that his interpreter was Lieutenant Charles A.P. Hatfield, who is, yes, a member of that infamous Hatfield clan. Garcia, whose demeanor and bearing impressed Hatfield, though his uniform did not, asked the most logical question. Uh, what exactly are you doing here? Forsyth replied simply, Depredations have been made against the United States, and we are tracking down those who had done it. Garcia was gracious and sympathetic, but it was his duty to remind Forsyth that he had crossed onto sovereign Mexican land, so the lieutenant colonel needed to kindly scram. Besides, he said, maybe with a hint of smugness, he had just crushed those Apache that had gotten away from the mighty U.S. Army. Intrigued by this news, Forsyth asked for a tour of this victory, and Garcia was gracious enough to agree. The battlefield at Aliso's Creek was not pretty, and the Americans were horrified to see the bodies of women and children lying everywhere, along with Mexican soldiers that Garcia and his men had just not bothered to bury. The soldiers also left accounts of being moved with compassion for the fate of the women and children the Mexicans had taken prisoner. These begged the Americans to pay off the Mexicans and take them back to the U.S. Lacking actual money, however, the soldiers couldn't do so, though they did try very hard to persuade Garcia to release Loco's daughter, but he refused to do that. Loco and his family would actually never learn her fate after this moment. Seeing that Garcia was running low on supplies and maybe thinking of a way to extradite himself from the international incident he could have started, Forsyth offered the services of the army doctors with him for the injured Mexican troops. Having new doctors for his men, Garcia gratefully accepted, and this show of magnanimity saved the lives of at least two of his men. Eventually, Forsyth departed for the U.S. once again, with no one getting hot and bothered about the illegal crossing. And Garcia's victory was applauded by officials in both Arizona and Mexico. In fact, Governor Trittle in Arizona wrote to his counterpart in Sonora to congratulate the troops for their very impressive victory. He also used this as an opening to suggest a diplomatic arrangement to allow troops from both sides to cross the border if needed to ferret out any of those darn marauding Apache. Now, the Apache watching from the mountains must have been extremely disappointed by the lack of fireworks in the valley below. 
the hated Mexicans and the hated Americans just shook hands and departed ways. Bummer. With no relief coming from that angle, they turned and continued heading for Qua's camp. They met up with the rest of their people on May the 5th, 1882. So just a little over two weeks from their cough-cough rescue of Loco from San Carlos. Here, family and friends were reunited, and the whole place was swarming with members of the four Chiricahua bands, plus some White Mountain and Mescalero Apache, and even some Navajo. Biographer Robert M. Utley also says that this time, that despite the accusations of cowardice later leveled against Geronimo for the Battle of Alisos Creek, you can see now that he clearly has taken a firm leadership role both in extricating himself and his people from battle, and then leading them successfully into the mountains to meet Hua and his people. Udley points out that this is impressive given the capture of Geronimo's wife, who he would actually never see again. In coming years, she would end up marrying a Chiricahua man who had also been captured at the same time. Also, for context, remember that he had married this woman in 1852, shortly after his first wife and family had been slaughtered by Mexicans. And though he had at least one other wife at this point, that doesn't completely mitigate the pain, anger, and or frustration he must have felt at losing his wife to his most hated enemy. Still, with the majority of his group making it back to reunite with Hua and others, it was time to celebrate. I don't have good numbers for how many were now all gathered in that spot, but it was in the hundreds and not the low 100s. And believe it or not, this was actually in and of itself a problem. As I have hopefully impressed upon you by now, the Apache were not some monolithic force, and the members of the various bands were not interchangeable. The local unit was the band, and that's where primary loyalties lay. So, gathered here as they were, the various bands began to grow restless and to squabble amongst themselves. Sweeney mentions how the Nednies were used to the harsher conditions living in the Sierra Madre Mountains, but that wasn't true across all bands. Loco, in particular, didn't care for Mexico. He hadn't wanted to come in the first place and even Geronimo and Hua were starting to fall out a little bit. That meant the time had come to seek greener pastures, or, in Apache terms, to raid and keep up their preferred semi-nomadic lifestyle. Now, I don't want to go too deeply into their movements, because Geronimo and the Chiricahua that were with him are going to stay in Mexico through the beginning of 1883, and we are a podcast about Arizona, so we should probably try to get our attention back there by the end of this episode. But let me give you some of the highlights, mainly because I find it fascinating, but also because it will give context for Geronimo's story when he next shows up in Arizona. So, the too-long-didn't-read summary of the Cliff Notes version of the Reader's Digest story is this. Eventually, the Apache came down from the hills to once again try to make peace somewhere. By mid-May 1882, it looks like they had an agreement to receive rations at Casas Grandes, with Geronimo even recalling that he and Hua had shook hands with officials there. Unfortunately, 
If we have learned one thing from the past 90 plus episodes, is that you can't trust anyone to really keep their word when it comes to Indian policy. Sure enough, the Mexicans double-crossed the Apache, giving them a boatload of liquor so they would be drunk enough not to put up a fight. It didn't work out entirely as planned because, again, soldiers fired too early and gave away the plot, but it was another huge blow for the Apache. And after this, Geronimo and Hua split up, with both sides going wherever they pleased for several months, looting and pillaging their Weasley black guts out along the way. Now, there are two notable things from this time I do want to talk about. The first is, at the end of August, Geronimo would attack an hacienda that belonged to none other than Ignacio Pesquera. If you, unlike me, don't have a large amount of history books that you've nearly committed to memory, then you probably don't remember that Pesquera has popped up in our story twice before. Way back in episode 28, as an adjunct inspector for Sonora, he had ordered the Mexican troops to leave Tucson for good in 1856 and to take up new quarters in Imuras. Then he reappeared in episode 29, fighting for his political life against Manuel Maria Gandara, another old friend of ours, to become the big cheese in Sonoran politics. It's that conflict that Henry Crabb and his filibustering expedition wandered into, promising to support Pesquera if they could settle in Mexico. And, well, yeah, that didn't go too well for Crabb. Re-listen to episode 29 to remember the exact particulars of how badly that went. Also, by the way, I'm just realizing that, holy crud, we are nearly 70 episodes from there, and we've only covered less than 30 years. Oh boy. Now, I just like the fact that Geronimo would just happen to hit the hacienda of this prominent person, giving us a chance to look back a bit and see exactly how far we've come. Seriously, when I read about this incident, I thought it was like an episode of your favorite TV show where a character who left years ago makes an unexpected cameo. Now, the second thing I want to cover from this time happened in October 1882, after Geronimo and Hua joined up again they learned that one of the architects of the massacre that had happened back in May at Casas Grandes kept an hacienda near Galeana, so southeast of Janos. Deciding that it was time for some sweet, sweet payback, they hatched a plan. With roughly 130 to 140 warriors, they began raiding in the area with the hopes of luring as many officers and troops as possible to a nearby place called Chocolate Pass, where an ambush would be waiting. The first couple of raids didn't produce the desired reaction, but when the third hit the ranch of Jose Mata Ortiz, one of the officers responsible for the slaughter at Casa Grandes, they got what they wanted. Mata Ortiz rounded up more than 20 men from Galeana to ride with him to pursue after those darn Apache, and soon they found themselves heading into Chocolate Pass. Like literally every other trap we've seen in the past two episodes, this one also sprang too early and Mata Ortiz and his men were able to dig into a position. However, Hua and Geronimo led a force against them, braving heavy fire to eventually swarm over the Mexican defenders and engage in hand-to-hand combat. By the end, Mata Ortiz and all but one of his men 
were dead. The survivor managed to get on a horse and ride away, with Geronimo yelling for his men not to pursue him. His rationale? This man would bring more Mexicans to the area soon enough. And if there's one thing Geronimo loved, it was killing Mexicans. Mexican accounts later stated that Mata Ortiz had actually been captured alive, but then was burned at the stake, something that Hua had threatened after the disaster at Casas Grandes. With this grand victory done, Geronimo split off from Hua once again and set up a camp in the rugged mountains of Sonora, which would be his base for the rest of the year and the first half of 1883. And that's where I'm going to leave things this week. Apologies for the Fellowship of the Ring-style cliffhanger, but for narrative reasons, I feel this is a good place to wrap up today's episode. But join me next week as we actually get back to Arizona and watch the complications happening there. Because as much as Geronimo and Hua may have thought they had a read on the situation, a complication quickly arose. Tired of dealing with these Apache, the White Eyes had turned to the only man they felt ever demonstrated an ability to get them under control. So now it was time for Geronimo to come face to face with Natan Lupin, the wolf leader himself, General George Crook. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.